One of the most fascinating aspects of my show, at least to me personally, I, I'm sure you guys don't give a damn, is when I go back through any given work that I know or that I've seen or that I've played, my opinions tend to change with the perspective of time and analysis and really digging into a work. Now, for the most part, that's usually in the positive. You know, I, I have actually been enjoying a decent amount of Season 1 TNG and DS9 more than I tend to remember, to use a direct example. You already see where I'm going with this, I'm sure. Because I didn't like this episode. And I'm really weirded out by that. If you asked me a few months ago, a couple days ago, you know, what I think of the positive episodes of TNG Season 1, Conspiracy would be in that list. As I mentioned earlier, you know, it's, it's, it, it, we've got decent episodes uh, across Season 1, and this is one of the ones I usually list. But really, when I was going through it, I was just like, this is just so weird, and it's especially in direct contrast to the previous episode, Well, I was of Paris, which I felt was a very tightly constructed script and did some good things correctly. But here... Yeah, I don't know. Here's the thing. It's all about the script itself. And I don't mean the main plot. You know, the idea of the bluegills, uh, the, the invasion, the conspiracy. That's all fine. That's all the part of the, the episode that I still enjoy. I mean, this isn't lamentation status by a long shot. But the specific details are like constant little... Eh. At a certain point in the episode, I stopped writing down every little niggling detail in the writing and in the dialogue because it was just such a non-stop problem. And you guys don't want me to just nitpick the entire episode, do you? That's not really what I'm here to do. Then I looked up the actual person who did the teleplay, Tracy Torme, and then everything made sense. Now, I mean no offense to anybody who happens to be a fan of Tracy Torme, but... Uh, I am very much not. Torme tends to be in the school of writing about... Uh, where, where he focuses more on... Here's what needs to happen. Who cares how we get there? Kind of a writing. You know what I mean? He doesn't care about the details. He doesn't sweat the little nuances or the little pokes of competency or decency or all those little detail things I've been pointing out in previous episodes. They're all absent here. Instead, it's the exact opposite. If I was to parallel this in an analogy, it's like sitting down at a movie, and the movie's okay, but there's some guy just flicking popcorn at you every few seconds. There's, and, and for the sake of this analogy, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just... And after a while... It gets worse, because it keeps happening, and it keeps happening, and it's like, I really did, like I said, I filled up more than half the page of my notes here with just little bits of popcorn, before I was like, okay, I gotta stop. This is, this is getting ridiculous. It's just a non-stop issue. I imagine that's gonna put me a bit of an outlier on terms of opinions on this episode. I know... Just hell, I liked this episode by memory, and talking to several of my friends and other people who are Star Trek fans, hell, even in the comments sections, I've had people say, you know, you know, conspiracy was a good episode. So, um, this is going to be an interesting section to to read your comments when this episode goes live. Let's rewind one second here. So, despite the fact that this episode, in many ways, kind of is anti-continuity, which is weird, the main premise of the episode is strong continuity, specifically following up on uh, coming of age, 
which is a previous episode, which is partially about Wesley, but also about Commander Remick and Admiral Quinn and the deadly serious threat to the Federation. And they laid those seeds a while ago. So for me, both as a kid and now, seeing that kind of continuity was an automatic plus. It's like, yes, we're following through on that idea and we're continuing to go somewhere with it. I've explained my thoughts on continuity so many times, I don't really feel the need to go into it again. All I'm going to say is that it makes me more invested. And that's all I really am going to add to that right now. So I'm automatically on board. Thing is, the original script was going to be a military coup. And several people, and not just Roddenberry, by the way, several people in the writer's room insisted, no. First of all, Roddenberry was adamant that the Federation would never have the concept of corruption in its organization. This is the perfect, idealized human future. Corruption doesn't factor into it. Whether you uh, agree with that or not, it is an understandable perspective. Most of the writers said, okay, that's not a bad idea, but that's not Star Trek, so we can't do that. I know I'm kind of talking about something, and I don't want to spoil DS9, because I know several people are watching it with me. All I'm going to say is that there is an episode of DS9 related to this topic, which I feel was done very, very well, and still keeping with the concepts of Star Trek, that had a military coup of Starfleet. Whether you agree with this or not, though, this led to some serious problems. Because this is pretty much the beginning of the severe politicking in the Star Trek writing room, which will last about until season three, when the well, through season two, when the major changeover would happen, and then certain people would leave the franchise permanently, and then certain people would change reigns, and then the, the series would solidify who was in charge of what, pretty much from season three to seven, from that point on. But this is the beginning of a political war, and I mean that sincerely. There's going to be the, the line was drawn with this one. I'm not going to name who's on which side. It doesn't even matter, because it became kind of heated, and I think a lot of the weirdness of season two of TNG can be attributed to this political infighting amongst the writers' room, the producers, and the developers, because. Nobody could really agree on certain things, and pe certain people would fight for certain things. Which brings me back to this episode. When they put forth the original story idea, obviously military coup, that caused a lot of infighting and people started to divide about that. Then a compromise was offered. What if it's just aliens? So rather than this being a political commentary or a military analysis or an analogy, uh, or excuse me, allegory for the Iran-Contra affair, which, as we all know, was about a couple of guys invading the Red... I'm, I'm going to stop here. Um, <clears throat> or was it Red Cobra? God, I, no, no, Red Falcon. That was it, Red Falcon. God, I haven't played that game in a while. All joking aside, they abandoned any of the, the, the political military aspects of this, which I'm not sure was a good idea or a bad. I'm not willing to lay judgment on that because I have no idea what the original episode would be like. And instead said it was aliens. I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. And all of the political stuff was just swept under the rug. And nobody was really happy with that. It was one of those compromises that pissed everyone off. And that's when the infighting actually got heated. Because they were still pushing, no, this episode's too dark. It ends on too dark of a note. And then there was this idea to shift things around. And the original script, and when I say original, at this point I think we're at the third draft or something like that, because we've already had this script tossed around a few times. But the, the intent to go to camera was 
that they beat Remick and they'd win. And the threat of the week goes away. And then people are like, well, no, we can't do that. That's pointless. We just introduce a race that randomly could take over the Federation in this episode. No. And so then there was fighting about adding a more darkness to it. And this is, like I said, this is where this dividing line kind of really started happening. And we ended up getting the episode we did. And I feel it kind of suffered for it. And for the fact that Tormea was writing the actual dialogue. Which brings me to uh, the episode. I, I'm still debating if I want to list for you all the little, to continue my analogy, the popcorn pieces that were being flung at me in this episode. Because there really were a lot. And the more I went through, the more obvious they became. I would love to see if you guys, when re-watching this episode, have the same reaction to me. Because it's like, it's little stuff. All right, we need to go to Pacifica, because, you know, obviously, that's that's the place they were going to in the last episode. They were going to the break, right? They kind of got interrupted because of timey-wimey, blah, blah, blah. So we need to go to Pacifica. Warp 8. Aye, sir. Full impulse. Uh, full impulse. God, I can't even talk right now. Um, warp is a little different than impulse. Also, the dropping of the term hyperspace and the fact that data is annoying. Now, I know this all sounds like weird things to point out, but my point is, it felt like I was watching different characters, if that makes any kind of sense. Data was obtuse and ignorant and annoying. Uh, Geordi was a non-entity. Picard was weird. We'll get into him in a second. Riker was... <gasps> And Worf, of course, has his wonderful line that swimming is too much like bathing. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> really? That's the direction you're going with? That Worf is just back there and there's like a stink cloud that you can't see that's just surrounding him? Really? I mean, yeah, 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 I know. Sonic showers, but really? That's where we're going with this? And then... uh you know, the teaser ends, you know, oh my god, Jean-Luc, we must do this. You don't understand, it's a threat to everything. I won't say everything, but it's a threat to everything. Let me give you the exact coordinates we're going to, and tell you when we'll be there. But don't tell anyone. I'm going to I'm gonna skip forward just a little bit, but then there, I, I do want to mention one other nit. Like like I said, I'm, I'm not, I've decided, I've decided, I'm not going to read all these, there's too many. But there's one big one that really got to me. Do you remember the end episode Lonely Among Us? It was earlier this ep this season, and it'll be important twice for this episode, okay? First of all, in that episode, Picard was acting legitimately wonky, to the point where it was kind of obvious that what we were looking at was not Picard. And everyone had, well, almost a too-measured reaction to that, you remember? Everyone was just taking it really calmly, and we're like, okay, yep, everything's cool. No issues here. Yep, yep, Captain just gave really weird orders that are totally out of line. But yeah, we're cool, we're cool. In this episode, Picard has received a Captain's Eyes Only message. And then he gives a completely in-line order. He says, this is a diversion that's off the record. We're going here as fast as we can, and then I'm beaming down alone. And yet everyone reacts... Like, I'm talking vis visually. Like, they're, like, the director said, all right, this is shocking to you. And so they react shocked to completely understandable, normal circumstances. Because, again, Captain Zine's only message, and then he goes down 
to a captain only. I mean, <laughs> you see the inconsistency here? Anyways. Then Picard goes down and talks to them. And this is the second time that Lonely Among Us comes into this because first Picard has to prove who he is. Whoa, yawn attack, which he does expertly, of course. We get a little bit of interesting backstory, consequently, the fact that he did not actually introduce Jack and Crusher together. Just a nice little tidbit there. And then Picard is basically mockingly disbelieving. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Again, I feel like the director was in on this episode of making it worse, because the way Patrick Stewart acts is not kind of, you know, eyebrow-raising. I know you, those of you listening or watching on MP3, but I'm just looking at you with my eyebrow raised, like, okay... Like, there's no mild disbelief. There's no polite, um, really? No, instead, he actually basically turns around and starts lowering his head like, wow, as if they had just told him that he was secretly a fish believing he was a man. Like, that's the physical reaction that, that Patrick Stewart gives to the news that there might be a conspiracy inside of Starfleet. He is weirdly disbelieving throughout the whole scene. Then, in what is effectively the very next scene, right after he promised he wouldn't tell anyone about this, he's telling Troy about this. And he is committed. He believes 100% that this is true. And she's the weirdly disbelieving one. In fact, the way Troy acts, and I know this sounds cruel, but it, it feels like it's Troy back from Encounter at Farpoint all of a sudden. Like she's saying the bleedingly obvious... And, and of course, she's disbelieving. And Picard has to actually explain to her why trust and instinct go in favor of basic orders. Like, <laughs> I don't even know what else to add to that. This is also doubly weird because my very first thought, of course, I've seen the episode, but my very first thought was, you know who a better person would be to talk to about the fact that you might be doing this whole conspiracy thing? Data! Why does he even tell Troy, actually? No, I'm dead serious. Why does he tell Troy? I got a better question for you. From an out-of-character perspective, what purpose does that scene serve? Again, I'm dead serious. If you chopped the Troy and Picard scene out completely, so what happens is he's down on the planet, he's disbelieving, and then he comes up and he says, Data, I have an assignment for you. And then if you remember, the moment after he sets that, it cuts to Data going through the archives, Right? That makes a lot more sense and a lot more narrative flow. First of all, Picard doesn't go immediately from disbelieving to, it must be the truth. And second of all, him asking Data, of all people, to confirm or deny this makes perfect sense. Data's not going to have any biases on the matter. Data's not going to think, oh, there must be a conspiracy, nor is he going to automatically assume there is no conspiracy, like most Starfleet officers would, and indeed do in this episode. So that is the perfect move. So why does he tell Troy anything? I actually believe the Troy scene was put in for to, to extend the episode out. Padding, basically. It's like, all right, here. Because it serves no purpose, and it's just insulting to both of them. <sighs> then, I, I know I said I wasn't going to bring up everything, but i got to bring this one up. Then Worf says, sir, we have an unusual disturbance. That might be the single most vague statement I've ever heard. And the weird thing is, no one like is bothered by that. We have, a, we have a blip on the sensors. Well, what does that mean? Is it a metal blip? Is it an energy blip? Has there something been detected that wasn't there before? 
No, there's just an unusual disturbance. Now, we can infer that the unusual disturbance was the ship self-destruct going off, or whatever they actually did, right? We can infer that, but you'd think, you know, I'm detecting an energy disturbance or an outbreak of energy or something might be a little bit more realistic. And then, immediately after that, he says, <clears throat> Sensors are just now beginning to pick up small objects. Okay, put it on screen. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You were in visual range. Visual range, which is only a few hundred thousand clicks, before the sensors were able to pick up anything at all. Sensors that can sense things light years away. I'm sorry to keep hammering this point in, but you see what I mean about the construction of the script? It's like... they were. I don't want to point directly at Torme, but it's like the, the writers because, you know, there was more than Torme involved in this, we're like, okay, we need to get them to the destruction of the ship so that Picard's suspicions are confirmed. We need so that there can be suspense and we understand the stakes. So, um, oh my god, I've, there's something over there. And they didn't actually sit and bother to do either a polishing pass to smooth out all these little niggles in the dialogue or using their brains, assuming you want to be negative about this and assume they're just bad writers. <sighs> So, the Horatio is destroyed. Oh yeah, sorry, I, one more thing. And then Worf says, based on the size of the wreckage, Sir, it can only be the Horatio! You can see where he's going with this. And this is, I understand that some of you are just going to call me nitpicky, and that's fine. But the construction of this script and this dialogue is so weird. Based on the size of the wreckage, it can only, you know, pause, 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 it can only be the Horatio! The ship that, you know, he was just warned by from Walker. Why is the wreckage size the indicator of that? Why not, well, this is the direction the Walker is, or we detected the Walker in this sector, or maybe we detected a freaking bulkhead that had U ICC, you know, USS, sorry, not ICC, <laughs> USS dot 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 on it, you know? But no, no, no. Anyways, anyways. Oh, yeah, then the computer cuts data off. <laughs> Whatever. This is a good time to bring up the music. It is so obvious to me uh, when it is not Ron Jones. <laughs> um, this is Dennis McCarthy. I actually looked it up. And if I could be so bold, I think one of the biggest things that pulled me out of the episode purely emotionally, obviously the script was giving me problems uh, logically and thought in terms of thought, but emotionally I was being pulled out of the episode because every scene is filled with, with, with doom, 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 music, 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 music. Like the worst part is when he beams down to an all red rock planet of hell and the music is, is so doom, doom, seriously. Watch the scene. It's right towards the beginning. It's like at the 11 minute mark or something like that. And when he beams down to the, the planet to have the, just, just as he's walking down the ramp, nothing's happening. Just listen to the music. Oh my God, dude. You're trying a little bit too hard. Which brings me to another point. While I do enjoy certain aspects of the concepts of this episode, and the bluegills would be used to good effect later in the comics and in Star Trek Online, um, I feel like this episode is trying way too hard. I feel like the director and the editors and, the, you know, the Dennis McCarthy was told, whoever was telling him, so probably the director again, everyone was being like, this is a really super scary thing. Everything has to be super serious, okay? So you need to act super scared and super serious all the time. And um, 
Well, it kind of shows. Anyways. So then Riker... Remember, so far we've had Picard disbelieving and Troy disbelieving. Then Riker is totally disbelieving. <laughs> and then Data shows up and it says, Sir, I have proof. And then Riker's like, Oh, well, I instantly believe you. We should go straight to Earth. That, this is the last time I'm going to bring up a little nitpick. I swear that's the last time I'm going to bring up a script nitpick. Because that is the exact moment I stopped writing them down. But the, this is, i got to bring this one up. Because, obviously, we need the Enterprise to get back to Earth to confront Ramek and Quinn and Starfleet headquarters. That makes sense. But, sir, I believe I have uncovered fairly strong evidence. <laughs> I think he actually says certain evidence, but I would call it very strong evidence that there is some kind of conspiracy going on. So Riker immediately says, and I'm just going to put this into, let's call it Mario terms to try and make my point for me here. So Riker then turns around and says, so wait, you think we need to go to level 3-2? And they're currently at 3-1. Because that's how it feels to me. Like, we need... He just, as a question, states where the next stage is. And that's why we need to go there. It doesn't flow naturally at all. There's no... Hmm, we may have to actually head back to you know Starfleet headquarters, see if there's anyone there who knows anything about this, see if there's anybody... Maybe we could get in touch with Admiral Quinn, you know, maybe name-drop him at this point, because he was already involved in this, remember? He came to us talking about an integral threat to everything. What was that episode? I just wrote it down. It was uh, it was the Wesley episode. I wrote it down somewhere. Uh, God, I have so many notes and I don't know. Coming of age. There it is. <laughs> the coming of, in coming of age, when Admiral Quinn comes aboard, he's very you know there's there's something threatening the very fabric of the Federation and blah blah blah. Why not name drop him here? You're bringing him in in the episode anyways. <sighs> okay, moving on. <clears throat> I'm going to get so many negative comments on this episode. So, then they warp home, and home refuses to acknowledge them until they're passing Luna. They're passing the moon. That's in, like, that's, that's in peace-throwing distance of Earth from, from interstellar perspectives and from the perspectives of a starship or starfleet. And then they finally decide to communicate, which is obvious. And that's a recurring trend for the entire rest of the episode. This is... I, I think this is the one thing that I could say pretty definitively is a, is a writing and script problem, because and possibly a directing problem as well. Because in the first half of the script, you know, we're told, we're told several times that there is this big secret threat and there's, they're super hidden and they do things, you know, between hidden channels without communicating to the rest of the fleet and they're super subtle and super secretive. And then from the moment they get to Soul System and onward, it, they met, the villains, the bluegills, basically have giant neon signs up saying, we're the bad guys. We're evil and we're the bad guys. We're up to something. <laughs> I mean, oh my God. <laughs> I, I'm, again, I'm not going to go over any example of this, but the way Admiral Quinn acts is probably the most overt example of this. Hi, I feel wonderful and fit, even though you know I'm a geriatric old man who was barely capable of functioning last time I was on this very ship with these very people. Oh, right, about that whole thing that I was worried about. I was just worried about entering new races into the Federation, something that has literally nothing to do with the last time I was talking about it. Don't be silly. 
we can say, I think, pretty definitively that Quinn was not bluegilled back in Coming of Age. I think that's pretty obvious and definitive based on the way they present it. But I'd like to posit a question to you guys really quick. When do you think Remick was invaded, was <laughs> replaced, whatever word you want to use here? I'm honestly curious, because there's plenty of theories and um, a reasonable amount of evidence for basically all of them that I've heard. The general idea is before Coming of Age after coming of age, or right before this episode. And, and if you wonder why right before this episode, it would imply that now that he's here, they're ready to go. For me personally, based on something we'll get to later, I think it's more likely Remick was already replaced before coming of age, because, because the bluegills all die without the mother creature, which is a whole other ball of, I don't want to get into that. And therefore, it would make more sense if the first one to come here would be the mother creature and then start to birth the, the lesser bluegills. Oh, by the way, they actually use the term bluegill in this episode once. I forgot about that. I mentioned that because the first time I really heard the term bluegills to refer to these things was in the comics. And um, I, I actually completely spaced that they actually called that that in this episode. So my bad on that. <sighs> Anyways, so then he toys with Riker because he's obvious. And then, because <laughs> even though there's like 50 different ways he could be like, oh, yes, sorry, I'm looking at some top secret documents. Forgive me, Riker. No, he just flat out says, yes, it's this creature, but it will eat you. <laughs> and then he toys with him and messes with him. And then he lets him call security. He doesn't do anything to try and stop that. Then security shows up and he toys with him and messes with them. This is also when the Wharf effect finally becomes a thing. Believe, if, unless I'm mistaken, and I just missed it, and I'm an idiot, this is the first time we ever see Wharf effect right here. Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Wharf effect is when you have someone on the regular cast of a show or a game or a series or whatever who is known as the strong one. Either they're skilled or they're powerful or they've got a really big gun or whatever, right? The Wharf effect is when you want to frankly, lazily, uh, establish that the villain you're fighting of the week is super, is, you know, is good, is strong or powerful or whatever. So what they do is they have that villain of the week beat the crap out of your strong person. Make sense? It's kind of the same concept as the red shirt idea. It's a cheap, lazy way to say this person is strong. Now, don't mistake me. There are ways to pull off this kind of concept properly, but that wouldn't be wharf effect. It's only wharf effect when it's overused to the point of becoming a joke. So we see wharf, and he's like, all right, I'm going to fight this guy, and then Quinn just absolutely wrecks him in seconds. Wharf effect. Then Crusher shows up with the gun, excuse me, a phaser, and has a brain. <laughs> Something about that amuses me a lot. That Crusher, of all people, would be the person to think, oh, I should just shoot this person rather than trying hand-to-hand -hand combat with him. I can admit that Riker, at least, I could forgive for the first couple of punches. But then again, and he probably didn't have his phaser, but you'd think when Jordy and Worf showed up, when he called for security, that they would have brought phasers, you know? Also, um, why did Jordy and Worf show up for security? I'm just wondering. Anyways, then there's the superhuman nature of the bluegill. Now, I want to stop and t just pause the episode for a second and talk about this. I've actually heard two, excuse me, three explanations, uh, one here in the episode, one in the comics, and one in STO, as to why the bluegills make their people, the people they are infesting, superhuman. 
Personally, I like STO's explanation the best. It has to do with their ability to basically interact with and react with energy fields, and therefore, essentially, rather than literally making them physically stronger, picture, uh, let's call it a coating of energy around them, which allows them to move, the basically the energy is what's actually moving, and the energy is moving with greater strength and durability than the flesh underneath it. Ergo, super strong, super durable. And then when you actually shoot them, they can convert that back around and push it out as latent radiation. It takes certain types of things to bypass that, either sufficient firepower or, you know, something that they just can't handle, right? Um, so that makes sense to me. Uh, I don't remember the comics explanation well enough to speak of it right now. Please forgive me on that. I unfortunately couldn't find my comics. I, went, I meant to reread them for conspiracy. I don't know where they are. And that makes me really sad because that means I'm going to have to find those and rebuy those. I, I, had, I had a whole bunch of Star Trek comics. I can't find any of them. I hope I didn't lose them in one of the moves. <sighs> um, then there's the episode's explanation. It's adrenaline. Now, in the interest of total honesty and fairness, Crusher is cut off in her explanation. So maybe it's adrenaline is the beginning of the explanation and not the totality of the explanation. But... The adrenaline response is something we actually know a decent amount about in the human body. It boils down to this. When, you're, when you reach a certain state, either because an emergency has happened, or you're in a certain level of pain, or your adrenal glands have been activated in a certain way, or you have the discipline to force yourself into that state, you can do things that you normally wouldn't be able to do. Now, the reason you can't normally do those things is doing those things basically shreds your body. If you push your muscles to a certain extent, your mo your muscles, your ligaments, your bones are being pushed to such stress points that you can cause yourself significant and indeed permanent physical damage by using your body that much. That's why we can't normally push ourselves that far. Make sense? Um, now, so the idea here is that in the episode, he's just constantly pushing himself to this extreme. Problem is, there's there's two major things wrong with that. Uh, first of all, the aforementioned stress to the body problem. You are going to be basically killing yourself anytime you exert yourself to that extent. The second problem is Riker should have the exact same response. Because Riker has just had the crap kicked out of him and he's being beaten up and he's facing a life or death sudden situation. The kind of thing that would activate the same response. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? If in the episode, you know, Quinn's like, ha, 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 and starts toying with him all casually, and then Riker, who's like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, basically gets into the exact same stone and starts fighting him, like, at an equal level. <laughs> Anyways, the adrenaline excuse is bullcrap. Let's just leave, let's just say it how it is and move on. I just wanted to talk about that really quick. Um, it also kind of helps to explain part of the uh, blind arrogance of the Bluegills, and why they're, because several times in the last part of the episodes, they're just like, yeah, whatever. What are you going to do to me, right? <sighs> Give me a break. Also, they mention that phasers have to be set to kill to affect them. Now, again, in the STO explanation, that makes perfect sense. You need a certain level of severity and energy output in order to bypass that field alteration thing I mentioned earlier. If it's adrenaline, that makes absolutely no sense. Also, um... Maybe I'm a weirdo, but last I checked, phasers set to kill meant phasers set to disintegrate. I could be wrong about that. 
I don't, I don't think we've actually established in the TNG area what the phaser settings are yet. That will actually come up in several future episodes. So maybe they just haven't established the scale yet. So I'm willing to let that go. I'm, tr I'm trying not to nitpick at this point. So I'm just going to move on. Uh, so now I've got to nitpick one more thing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Crusher has Quinn in a, in a tube, which I would like to assume is doing some kind of scans on his body, right? And so she says, yeah, he's Quinn. In every way, he's Quinn. Then she mentions she needs to do an internal scan, which brings me to my first question. Why didn't you begin with that? Now, we could argue specifics of timeline and what's available, but many times in Trek, including in TNG, you can whip out a tricorder, scan someone, and tell what's inside them. I'm pretty sure they did that in TOS, but I'm not willing to put 100% on that. It's not that far out of bounds that when he's in a medical examination table, you could probably scan inside, and yet she apparently hasn't done so. And number two, in her discussions, in her willing to state absolutely that this is Quinn, her examination of whatever made that determination apparently never noticed the giant, incredibly obvious spoke coming out, moving spoke coming out of his neck. Um... I'm starting to really question the medical personnel of the Enterprise-D in Season 1 TNG. Don't worry, there's also some parts in Season 2 TNG where it's bad as well, but we'll get there when we get there. <sighs> I do have one question, though. Maybe this is why they've been so subtle up until now, because that little spiky thing sticking out of the neck is really, really obvious, to the point of ridiculous. Now, if you don't believe me, let me put it to you this way, and I know this is going to be embarrassing for some, and you don't have to admit in the comments anything, but I want you to imagine you got a zit. Okay? And that zit's like over here in your neck, right? I've had those, right, when I was younger. <laughs> or maybe you got one on your cheek, right? It's a little red pimple, something like that. It's really obvious, right? Even at a glance. Now imagine you have a giant spike sticking out of your neck. Now picture the uniforms that Starfleet personnel wear. You see where I'm going with this? That's the kind of thing that anybody should be able to notice within seconds, instantly. Like the first time the bluegills show up. Sir, what's on your neck? Oh, uh, it, 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 it's nothing. It's nothing. <clears throat> Just come this way, please. Quick, I need another bluegill right now. Yeah. Then the episode commits the cardinal sin, in my opinion. It has a jump scare. I forgot about this. The music does the, it, it's, it's a classical type one jump scare where the music kind of slowly builds and then kind of gets quieter and then Riker's like, oh my god. And at first I was really confused why they'd have a jump scare at all in this episode. I, I get it, horror, whatever. And I also was confused as to why the jump scare was Riker being up and moving. Then we cut down to the planet and Riker is like, yes, I am now one of them. To which my reaction is, oh, that's why they did the jump scare. Because they wanted to, f to fool the five-year-olds in the audience into thinking that Riker was now possessed by the Bluegills. Now, I don't know if that actually caught me when I was a kid, because one of the first things Mum did when I was watching this next to her was say, oh, okay, he's faking. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I have no idea if I would have ever gotten that or not. But um... then there's the food scene, very gross. Supposedly they did have actual grubs there for some of it, and just crunchy stuff for when they're actually eating. Uh, really gross, really gross. Don't have much to add to that. 
it is kind of funny how they've just at that point abandoned even the basic pretense of subtlety and it's just like yeah we're evil we're evil <laughs> dead puppies <laughs> um and then they rush off and they go after Remick. <sighs> can I just say ew? Yeah, are we in agreement? Whether you like gore or not, ew. <laughs> they they certainly managed to make Commander Remick and his uh its destruction pretty damn gross, basically from, from word one. From him eating the bluegill to his neck bulging, to his torso exploding, to the creature being disintegrated. It was just one big slide down the ooh train. I do want to point out two things about that scene, though. Just really quick. First of all, huge props to the star map in the background. As a result of my uh, research into this, I found an actual blown-up picture of it full-size. There's actually labeled systems in that star map and everything, ones that are actually in previous episodes of Star Trek and in the original series, which is really cool. I never knew that. Obviously, watching this on a grainy TV back in the 80s, you know, I didn't see any of that. So huge props for uh, the prop that they designed there. Apparently, it was also used in Doctor Who. I don't know exactly the details of that. The other thing I wanted to mention is that Picard's face is fascinating to watch. Now, in an episode like this, I find it hard to judge anyone's character properly because I feel like their characters are misrepresented. So it's hard to take this into the aggregate when judging a character across a series. Makes sense? That being said, Picard's expression as he views Remick just goes from mortified to disgusted to looks like he's about ready to vomit as he's ready to as he just guns it down with with almost rage in his vo- in his in his eyes in his face. Now that is very interesting to me, because given what Picard will eventually become, he will argue for the lives and beings that are arguably much worse than this, less gross, but much worse overall. He will try to ha- to reach a reasonable solution or to attempt communication, or to attempt a diplomatic approach, and all sorts of other things. And I find myself wondering, if we were to assume that this is in character, how much of it is just the gross factor, or how much of it is the sensation of violation? Because what I mean by that is, yeah, okay, this is some big horrible thing, but maybe maybe we can just reach out to it. What he's seeing in front of him is not just some big horrible thing. It's some big horrible thing that has corrupted something he believes in. Something that he finds to be pure. Something that should be untouchable. Starfleet, the Federation. And that's what pisses him off sufficiently to gun it down. Just food for thought. Then, of course, because the mother dies, all the little ones die. (sighs) Again, I'm not even getting into that. And then the ending... Probably the one scene in the entire episode which leaves me with a legitimately enjoyable sensation of horror. That was just, as the ship's going off and you just hear the little signal in the background. And of course they never followed through on that. There are some talks, although this is very, very, very anecdotal, so I'm only going to put like a maybe a 30% likelihood on this. But there's some talks that this was what was supposed to lead into the Borg. We'll discuss the Borg a little bit more when we get to the child. I know that sounds weird, but trust me, it'll make sense. All in all, not really as good of an episode as I remembered. It wasn't that terrible. It was just irritating. I do apologize. I hope you've at least enjoyed my discussions about it. And I guess I'll be seeing you guys next week with a much more interesting episode to talk about. Oh my god. And then we'll finally be done with season one.
So see you around, guys.